It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with uh, Helen Scales. Hello. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up, a stroke of luck for doctors who are battling brain hemorrhages because researchers have turned an 80% death rate into an 80% survival rate, and we'll be finding out why shortly. Also, we'll be hearing about frogs in China that croak with ultrasonic croaks so that their mating calls don't get drowned out by the sounds of nearby running water. More on that in a second. And also the robot that can give you a speedy hair transplant if the comb-over is beginning to look a bit unconvincing. That's all on the way. Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're looking into the menagerie of microbes that live on us and inside us. It might surprise you to know that we are quite literally passengers in our own bodies because there are at least 50 times more bacteria living on us than there are human cells that we are made of. But what do these bacteria do? And is there any truth to the claim that living clean can give us those allergies that we suffer from? We'll also be finding out whether the probiotic yogurts you can see in the supermarket actually make a difference to your health. Thank you very much, Helen. And along the same lines, you've heard heard that coughs and sneezes spread diseases, but you might want to hold your nose for this week's Kitchen Science. What I've done is, is taken some um, McConkie agar plates that are very good at culturing um, faecal bacteria and done some very crude experiments where we've exposed the plates to people farting in terms of a, a, a naked fart with no pants and no jeans on and also people farting with underpants and jeans on. <laughs> And Ben Valsler will be testing how readily bacteria can make it past your pants later on in the programme, when we're also going to be sizing up this age-old problem. Somewhere I heard that the big plant-eating dinosaurs could live up to a 1,000 years. On another programme or podcast, I heard that tyrannosaurs only live 20 to 30 years, which seems very brief for such a big animal. So I'd like to know, how can you tell from a fossil how long that animal lived? So if you'd like to suggest an answer or you'd like to join in this week's discussion about the bacteria living on us and in us, then drop us a line. Chris at thenakedscientist.com The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off with a look at what's hot this week in the world of science. And very exciting for people who are working in the field of strokes and brain hemorrhages is a piece of research from Johns Hopkins, Helen. This is a researcher called Daniel Hanley. And he and his team have been building on work they started doing in 2006, which is the idea of when someone has a brain hemorrhage, so this is a bleed of blood into the brain substance itself, they've been looking at the idea of putting in clot-busting chemicals inside the brain to get rid of the blood clot because when these intracerebral hemorrhages occur, they're so dangerous for a number of reasons. One of them is that the blood clot itself puts pressure on the brain locally, and this cuts down the supply of blood to adjacent bits of the brain. The second problem is that the, bl- the blood can obstruct the flow of cerebrospinal fluid. This is the chemical fluid that bathes the brain normally, and it has to get out of the brain and get reabsorbed into the rest of the body, and the blood clot can stop that happening, so the brain swells even more. And also the presence of the blood can leach other chemicals that cause other blood vessels supplying different parts of the brain to go into a kind of spasm. It's called a vasospasm. And this can cut off the blood flow to different parts of the brain, further compounding the stroke by causing other strokes. So overall, this condition has a very grim prognosis for the people whom it affects. It has about an 80% mortality rate normally. Now doctors are normally pretty reserved about the idea of putting in clot-busting chemicals into patients who have been bleeding because they might make the bleed worse. But what these 
this, this team decided to do was to inject very tiny amounts of a chemical called TPA. This is tissue plasminogen activator and is one of the body's natural anticoagulant chemicals that breaks down clots. But rather than putting it into the bloodstream, they decided to add it directly to the CSF, the cerebrospinal fluid, inside the brain itself. And they did it at very low doses and they tested three different doses, a lower dose, a medium dose and a higher dose, on 52 patients. And they were really surprised to be able to turn what was an 80% mortality rate in this disease into an 80% survival rate. And of the patients they treated, 10% we're back at work within a month. So this looks like it could really turn around this condition. And at the moment, they're talking about setting up a much bigger trial of some 500 patients to now get the doses absolutely spot on and see if this is an appropriate and safe thing to do. Presumably, you have to act pretty quickly when someone has a stroke to to administer this kind of drug, given all these awful side effects that can happen from it. Yes, and the idea is to get someone scanned very, very fast, find out if they've had a brain hemorrhage. So you can see that on a CT scan, for instance, and then you would usually infuse this into the ventricle, the fluid space inside the brain, and when they did this study, they found that the patients in whom they did this got better. Their clots disappeared three times faster than patients that were just managed conservative, like control patients. And also the people on the highest dose they gave got better on average a day faster than those who had the lower doses. So it does look like the right thing to do. And the really reassuring thing was that the patients whom they treated with these clot busters didn't have any additional bleeding events inside their brains, or they didn't have any more bleeding events than patients who didn't have any of this treatment. So it looks like it's a safe but very effective way to do it. And Daniel Hanley himself actually says that they've really managed to turn this story around. Excellent news. Now we're going to hop over to the animal world now um, and talk about frogs. Now, most members of the frog world, um, it has always been thought that the noisiest ones of them were the males because they sing out to attract mates. But now it seems that female frogs might join in too occasionally and do the same thing. Just before they're about to lay their eggs, female concave-eared torrent frogs from the Hongshan hot springs in central China call out in ultrasonic peeps to attract a male to come and fertilise their eggs for them. Now, these are frogs I believe we, we may have even talked about a couple of years ago. They were only discovered about three years ago when uh, we found that the males make these ultrasonic calls. But now it seems the females do the same thing. That's what a team of researchers led by Yung Jiang Chen, I think, from the Chinese Academy of Science in Beijing. Easy sorry, for him to say. I, sorry if I got that wrong. Um, that's what they found out when they took some of these frogs into the laboratory. Now, they'd already suspected that the females might have an ability to call because they had a very unusual... Um, feature for female frogs which is that they had well-developed vocal cords and they actually listened to these frogs with ultrasonic detectors and indeed discovered that the females were calling out at about the time when they would be laying their eggs. Now the team recorded all these calls and played them back to males who responded immediately by hopping directly towards the source of the sound sometimes in a single well-aimed leap which is rather wonderful and it's thought the females shriek at such a high pitch so that they can be heard over the noisy babbling water of the streams that they seem to live next to usually um, and it puts frogs among a very small group of animals that communicate with ultrasound, including bats and whales and dolphins and a few insects. How do they make the ultrasound? Oh, I actually don't know, Chris. <laughs> don't, I'm afraid I don't know that. But um, one thing about it is that it's, it's telling us more than just wonderful things going on in the natural world. But actually, these findings have got quite important implications for human studies, studies on human hearing. Um, because by understanding more about how these frogs can so accurately detect and locate and j- hop after these sounds, um, it might help help scientists design much more effective hearing aids for people.
Well, let's hope so. Uh, we'll, well, from hearing aids for people to a condition which is very, very serious, and so far 65 million people worldwide have been infected with this bug, it's, of course, HIV. One of the big problems with HIV is that once you're infected, it's very hard to flush the virus out of the body. It seems to have this ability to lurk in the body undetected for the lifetime of the individual who's infected. So you can use drugs that can target the active virus and, and effectively destroy it, but it always seems to come back from somewhere. And now a group of researchers at Brigham Young University in the States, led by Greg Burton, have managed to track down where these viruses reoccur from. Where do they go? Where do they hide? And that's what they found. So they took patients who had HIV and followed them over a period of time, even right through until the time when they died of usually an AIDS-related illness, and they got tissue from them. And they looked specifically at their lymph nodes, which are the glands that come up when you have an infection, and they tracked down a kind of cell in there called a follicular dendritic cell. And these are very important to the immune system because they're, they're like, a bit like an octopus with many arms coming off the cell. And their job normally is to grab antigens, these are bits of bacteria and viruses that we're exposed to, and present them to the immune system so the immune system knows what to recognise and how to recognise it and how to respond to it. And what they found is that HIV has, has learned how to adapt so that it can stay stuck onto these follicular dendritic cells and loiter there in an intact and infectious state for years. So when they got these cells out, they were able to find examples of versions of the virus that these people had carried many months, in some cases years previously, during their illness. And so what they're saying now is, well, if we can find a way to detach the virus from these cells, then it might be possible to treat them because you can actually get rid of this reservoir of virus that, that continuously reseeds the body because every time your cells from the immune system come through these lymph nodes to find out what they should be responding to, they get reinfected. And if you can break that cycle, it might be possible to have an inroad into how HIV causes disease. And so can we do that? Have they found a way of, of breaking into those uh, those cells? Well, no, but then this is just an initial observation that that's probably what's leading to it. And so if we can find a way now to, to actually destroy that virus attached to these cells, that might be a really useful way to actually have an inroad into tackling HIV. The obvious question to ask is, well, why, why should these cells want to hang on to a live virus for so long? And what probably is going on, and this is a paper, if you want to read it, it's in the Journal of Virology this month, what they've actually uh, suggested in their paper is that these cells probably act as sort of larders for antigens. So when you're exposed to an antigen, I don't know, you get a flu vaccine or something, some of the flu vaccine gets stored in these cells and periodically represented to the immune system to remind your immune system what it should be reacting to. And HIV has learned to exploit that system to its own advantages. So we just need to work out how to stop HIV doing that, but without disabling the rest of the function of the immune system, because it obviously does a very important job. Sounds like another good signpost on how we're going to actually deal with these dreadful diseases. Now, I'm going to return once more to the uh, to the oceans. I can't ever get away from them, I'm afraid. Um, with some rather lovely news this week out that when they're hunting, pilot whales might sprint after their prey in incredibly fast bursts of speed into the dark depths of the ocean, a bit like speedy cheetahs do on land. That's according to Natasha Aguila Soto from the Laguna University in Spain and colleagues from Woods Hole in the US and Aarhus University in Denmark, who've been studying pilot whales off the coast of the Canary Islands in the Atlantic. Now, studying the foraging behaviour of deep-sea creatures like whales is obviously a huge challenge. But to find out more about how whales catch their food, this team attached electronic tags to 23 pilot whales to record how fast they were swimming, how deep they swam and in which direction, as well as any noises they emitted while they were looking for their prey. It's a little bit like those frogs we were talking about. They emit very high-pitched noises 
to actually hunt for things they're going to eat. Now, what the researchers have discovered is that far from being energy-saving slow swimmers, pilot whales can swim incredibly fast. They can plunge down to a kilometre in just 15 minutes. And it seems just like a cheetah that when they spot a prey, they dash after it in a sustained burst of speed. Now, Chris, how fast do you think um, these whales might be swimming? Mm, cheetahs go fast, don't they? 60 yeah, how, miles an hour or so. 60 so miles an hour. This is cheetahs. in water, so it's going to be proportionally slower. I don't know, 30 miles an hour? 20, actually, which is not too not bad, too actually. Far. And it isn't as fast Very as fast. cheetahs, but it is really good for these creatures. Which But, but I thought uh, also, the idea when these whales dive down, I thought the, the perceived wisdom was that they conserved energy and didn't move too quickly because that would burn off oxygen and they didn't have any much oxygen, so they wouldn't want to do that. That's exactly what, why this is such a surprise, because obviously whales are holding their breath. Not only are they swimming so fast, but um, they're not breathing at the same time. So why, not, why aren't they doing a slow burn? But it seems that maybe this is actually what they have to do in order to pursue the prey that they're after, including things like colossal squid, that wonderful creature we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the one that was defrosted in New Zealand. And perhaps they do have to be able to swim this fast to be able to chase after other creatures um, that aren't holding their breath because they're they're actually breathing water with gills and things. Um, That's the only way they're going to be able to keep up with them. So that's another strategy that that they employ. Inevitably, we'll just have to watch what happens and see if this applies to other deep-sea creatures. But talking about running after things and the tide moving and all this kind of thing, the tide of the advancing, receding hairline uh, could could actually have a solution to this here because there's a wonderful um, thing being written up. It's in New Scientist this week. I spotted this. And there's a company called Restoration Robots based in Mountain View in California. And they've come up with a robot that can be used to do hair transplants. Now, the way in which you normally do a hair transplant is that uh, an experienced surgeon would go to a hairier bit of your head and take a strip of scalp, usually about 15 centimetres long by about a centimetre wide, complete with hair. Then they take that out and put it in a dish, stitch the bit of head together that they took the scalp from so that you've got an invisible line there, and then you go to your donor bit of scalp and extract painstakingly each of the hair follicles from it and then re-implant them in hair sparse bits of your scalp to give the impression of a full head of hair again. And the whole process is very laborious. It takes about 10 hours. And during that entire time, of course, the patient is awake. You do it under local anaesthetic, but it's painstaking and painful for the patient and for the surgeon. That's where this robot comes in. It does the whole procedure in half the time, just five hours. It uses laser guidance to home in with a hollow needle on individual hair follicles, which it plucks out and then immediately repositions them once it's got a big clutch of them it repositions them on the head automatically so it's much better for the patient because you only have to be immobilized for about half the time I wonder if it would actually work. It sounds rather fantastical to me. We're listening to The Naked Scientist. This week we're talking about microbes and the creatures that live on us and in us. So if you've got any questions at all, then do drop us a line. Chris at thenakedscientist.com Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com so, Chris, I've got a couple of emails here. We're talking about bugs and things that live on us this week. And one of the main ways, or one way, we transmit them to each other is by sneezing. So I've got a couple of sneeze questions, which maybe you'll be able to help us with. Not to be sniffed at. Not to be sniffed at. <laughs> Damien Kakuza, I think, uh, again in Australia, wants to know what happens if you try and hold a sneeze in, while a, a Vashi in the US wants to know, can you keep your eyes open when you sneeze? And if you do, um, will they pop out of your head? <laughs> I've kept my eyes open in the name of objective research while sneezing to see what would happen and I can 
categorically say I still have my eyes, I can still see, so I don't believe the idea so that they actually, pop out of your I've head. Because I've tried, I think, and failed to keep my eyes open. Yeah. I, just, I just can't do it. How did you manage? Um, did you I just forced myself. <laughs> I was driving and I didn't want to shut my I eyes point, when I yeah. sneeze, so I mm. forced them to stay open and I still have my eyes. I don't know where this myth comes from, but the fact is that the only connection between the nose cavity and the eye is your tear duct, which runs from the edge of your nose up to the middle part of your lower... of the middle... Uh, inner surface of your lower eyelid so if you look at your lower eyelid right where it meets the edge of your nose you'll see a little black dot and that's the plug hole through which tears drain and i think probably the reason we close our eyes when we sneeze is because you do get quite a big build-up of pressure in the nose and it will cause a sort of reflux of fluid back up the tear duct and it will squirt your tears back into your eyes and if you screw your eye up you squeeze that duct closed and it does stop some of the tear film squirting back up into your eyes but that's why people say blow your nose if you have something in your eye because it forces some of the tears back up into the eye it means that there are more tears in the eye for a short while and this helps to wash out anything so i don't believe the tears uh, the sneezing making your eyes pop out um in terms of it going at 100 miles an hour. Oh, yes, he says that's right. It goes 100 kilometres an hour. So if you if you don't sneeze, does it make your head explode or give you an aneurysm or something? There's, there's no connection between the um, bit of the respiratory tree that the sneeze has to rush out of 100, hours, 100 miles an hour and your brain. So it shouldn't actually do that. But um, I think that if you don't let the sneeze out, there's a possibility you could end up with the mucus it's trying to dislodge being rammed further into the passages inside the nose, the sinuses, for example, in the face. And so I suppose you could actually encourage the build-up of mucus, which could be laden with infection. So you could encourage infection. It's probably better to let it out. And there's nothing, let's face it, better than a sneeze, is there? Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your sneeze questions. And because uh, this week we are um, talking about the top to bottom of the bacteria passengers, bacterial passengers that we carry around with us on our bodies and how those bacteria can keep us healthy, but they can also sometimes make us ill. Now, one part of the body that's absolutely seething with bacteria is the mouth. And Marcello Riggio from the University of Glasgow has been studying them. Hello, Marcello. Hello, good evening. Thanks for joining us on the show today. So what sort of bacteria do we find living in the average mouth? Uh, the mouth is composed of many, many hundreds of different bacteria, each with different properties. Uh, at the last count, there were approximately 700 species which had been identified. However, only about half of those can actually be grown, physically grown in the laboratory. So that it's a really sort of diverse population of bacteria within the mouth. And obviously we have a number of good bacteria, which will promote good oral health. And unfortunately, we have a number of bad bacteria, which are involved in some nasty oral diseases. What sort of densities do you find these bacteria in, Marcello, if you were to take a swab from the mouth? Because people talk about a tabletop having on each square centimetre of some desks 20,000 bacteria per square centimetre. What, what would be the numbers that you would get from the, from the mouth? Yeah, it, it depends on the which part of the mouth you're actually looking at. Uh, the, the tongue, which which is is the area of the mouth which uh, harbours bacteria which cause bad breath, has a very dense uh, population of bacteria there. So you're, you're really talking in terms of millions of bacteria in a small surface area. So it, it really is bacterial rich environment. It's a bacterial banquet. Why do we have them there? Is it purely because we can't do without them? Is it that we can't stop them being there, or do they actually do some useful jobs for us? Yeah. Uh, first of all, we can't stop them being there. Uh, bacteria are present throughout the human body, so the, the mouth shouldn't be any different, uh, isn't any different from the rest of the, of the body. 
there are a number of bacteria which have been identified, and one in particular, uh, which is certainly classified as a good bacterium, uh, which people have found is present at higher levels in the healthy mouth compared to somebody who's got bad breath, for example. So the good bacteria are there to perhaps swamp out the bad bacteria to keep it in simple terms. What about tooth decay? Is, is that down to the same bacteria? And are there therefore people who have more tooth decay prone bacterial types in their mouths the the bacteria which cause tooth decay sort of dental caries and, and periodontal disease which is a disease which results in you actually losing the teeth there are distinct bacteria associated with each of these types of diseases if we look at dental caries dental caries is um, sort of uh, loss of the enamel on the tooth surface and that is caused by bacteria which are very good at producing acid particularly streptococcus mutans and a few helper bacteria whereas if we look at things like periodontal disease and gingivitis gingivitis is the sort of swelling and bleeding of the gums there are specific bacteria associated with that and the associated more severe form of the disease known as periodontal disease we're turning to what can really be described as radioactive breath halitosis is that Mm. linked to bacteria in the mouth very much so Uh, halitosis is uh, a term and it comes from the latin Uh, Two words, halitus meaning breath and osis meaning abnormal condition. So it's defined as an abnormally odorous condition of the breath and it is well documented that it is caused by, principally by bacteria. And there are various different types of bad breath, different causes. We can have what's known as genuine halitosis, which can be either physiological or pathological. And in simple terms, genuine halitosis, which is physiological, is caused by bacteria on the rear surface of the tongue, which are living on the rear surface of the tongue. And we've done a very large study trying to identify those particular bacteria. You can also have bad breath, as I'm sure we all know, from eating uh, smelly things in the diet, things such as onions, garlic uh, and other spices. But that sort of bad breath is transient and disappears fairly quickly. But we were more interested in our own research to look at long long-term bad breath or halitosis caused by bacterial metabolism on the rear surface of the tongue. Do you think certain people are more likely to carry the kinds of bacteria that give you bad breath and therefore there tends to, it tends to associate with certain people? Or, for instance, if I had a partner who tended to have smelly breath and I kissed them a lot, could I then end up infecting myself with the same bacteria so I would then in turn also get smelly breath? At the moment, we're, we're not absolutely certain which bacteria are the major culprits that cause bad breath. However, in our own study, we have shown that uh, the, the overall bacteria which are present in patients and in, in people with and without bad breath are pretty much the same. But what we actually see is a change in the numbers of specific bacteria in people with bad breath compared to those who have got a, a who don't have bad breath. So it seems to be relative amounts of bacteria a shift in the proportion of a particular species or species which causes the bad breath so in effect we all do possess the bacteria that cause bad breath but those of us with without bad breath have them at a much lower number uh, in second life rolly mandelbrose listening to us and says I, i'll think of this next time i kiss someone troy McLuhan asks you um they say there's something called fight bite which happens when people get bitten by other people they get a bad infection what's that all about uh, bacteria can easily be transmitted through bites. Bacteria within the oral cavity are designed to stay there, actually, but uh, they can get to other parts of the of the body and cause more serious diseases. So if one were able to transmit uh, some of these more opportunistic oral bacteria to other body sites, then, yeah, they can cause serious infections. Uh, Diana's on the phone. Hello, Diana. Hello. Uh, you got a question for Marcello. Yeah, 
I know he, was, he mentioned about the bad breath, so I'm going to ask him a slightly different question. Uh, I'd actually heard in the past that oral bacteria can cause heart valve problems and hip joint infections. If, is this true, and how and which bacteria are involved? Uh, hi, Diane. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, yes, uh, oral bacteria... Uh, can be transported around the body in the blood. If they can get into the bloodstream, they can be transported to various body sites and cause far more serious uh, systemic infections. And you quite rightly mentioned two infections, uh, endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valves, the, the inner lining of the heart, and uh, hip joint infections. Uh, there are a number of bacteria which do cause endocarditis, for example, and these tend to be staphylococci and streptococci, but there are a number of oral other oral bacteria which have also been implicated in that. Uh, we've actually carried out a study looking at prosthetic hip joint infections, uh, looking at the types of bacteria which are involved in these particular infections and we've identified a number of bacteria including uh, bacteria which are known to reside in the mouth. So basically you infect yourself with what, you, what you've already got in the mouth and, and it translocates to a bit of the body that it shouldn't normally get to. Helen's got a question. Yes, we already talked a bit about the, the bacteria that we get in our tongues and David from Nottingham has actually emailed us and asked about those new toothbrushes that he's seen adverts for on the TV um, in, with a sort of scraper built into them that you're supposed to scrape your tongue with and he wondered, um, should we be using these things? Are they actually beneficial? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the bacteria which cause bad breath are actually towards the back of the tongue and they are buried deep within the tongue. So the only way to remove them or, or, or reduce their numbers there is to actually use some form of scraping device. And uh, it's not a very pleasant thing to do. Uh, obviously, if you're trying to scrape bacteria from the back of the tongue, you know, one, one may occasionally gag as well. But it, if you can do that regularly, it will help to keep bad breath at bay. So yes, one would definitely advocate the use of any scraping device, particularly those which are incorporated into toothbrushes, because it has been shown if you can actually reduce the number of bacteria at the rear of the tongue, then there will be uh, less chance of you having uh, bad breath. Marcello, thank you very much. That's Marcello Riggio, who's from the University of Glasgow. He's been looking at the kind of bacteria that make a meal out of living in our mouth. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. We also should say a very big welcome to everyone who's listening to us in Second Life, where we broadcast this show live every Sunday. It's at 6pm UK time, but bizarrely and confusingly enough, that's 10 o'clock a.m., Second Life time, and that's because Second Life's based around California. So if you'd like to meet some of your fellow listeners, or at least you can meet their avatars, what they choose to look like on the internet, then log on to Second Life. You go to Scilands, which is the big science-centric continent, and you search for the Naked Scientist Mansion, and you can relax on a big sun lounger, and you can take part in the programme. Still to come in this week's show, which is all about the bacteria that we carry around on us and in us, we'll be finding out about whether giving people doses of live bacteria in the form of probiotics, like the stuff you can buy in yoghurts in the supermarket, whether that can actually help us ward off diseases and allergies. But before that, we will pay a visit to the scientists who've created a model intestine in the laboratory to discover how the bacteria that live in our guts get there in the first place, how they survive, and how what we put in our mouths might affect them. This week, I've come to the School of Food Biosciences at the University of Reading to find out how the bugs in our body can actually help with our health. Now, bacteria are literally everywhere on Earth. And us humans depend on them a lot. 
One of the ways we depend on them is to help us digest our food. So a team here at Reading are using a model of our large intestine to find out just how these so-called good bacteria work. I'm here with Dr Gemma Walton, gut microbiologist at Reading University, who's going to tell me more about how these models work. The large intestine is the region just after the small intestine. It comprises of the proximal, the transverse and the distal colon regions. And what's different between these regions? The small intestine is quite an acidic environment. So the beginning of the large intestine is slightly acidic and it gets less acidic and more neutral as you move to the more distal regions. And so here with the models, I can see we've got three main bottles. So I guess these are representing each part of the intestine. Yes, uh, so we've got our proximal, transverse and distal regions. They're held at different pHs, so different acid levels, by pumping in acid and alkali to each of the vessels just to maintain them. At the front, we've got a slightly larger bottle, which seems to be feeding into well, the first stage of the large intestine and then onwards. So what's in that large bottle? In that first large bottle would be our non-digested foods uh, that would typically arrive in the large intestine to be broken down further by the bacteria. What bacteria are found in the large intestine then? Um, There's many, many different species of bacteria in there. Typically we have species of Lactobacillus, Bifidobacteria, Clostridium, Bacteroides, Eubacteria. We used to believe the large intestine was just the area for the absorption of water, but now we can see there's millions and millions of bacteria and it's actually a very metabolically active organ of the body. How did these bacteria get there in the first place? It starts off at birth. When a baby is delivered vaginally, the first time it's in contact with bacteria is when it leaves its mother. It's basically getting a vaginal inoculum straight away when it's born. So there's lots of different species like lactobacillus in the vaginal tract. So this is the first meal, if you like, that the infant will get. These bacteria that get into the infant will then use up the oxygen very rapidly in the large intestine. Therefore, you get an area that's got no oxygen, which is what we're left with a system with lots of bacteria growing that don't use oxygen. So once these bacteria are down there, how do they actually help our digestion? When you ingest a meal, it goes down and it's ingested by your own enzymes and broken down in your small intestine. However, there's loads of partially digested foods actually reaching the large intestine. For example, there's some different starch molecules and the longer-chained carbohydrates are reaching the large intestine. So these can be then further broken down by the bacteria in the large intestine and broken into short-chain fatty acids and other products that might be beneficial to human health. So we've got this model showing the large intestine. What are you actually trying to find out? Okay, in these models, this is the gross part. What we actually do is we place a faecal suspension into each vessel of the model. This is our way of putting in the bacteria that would be naturally found growing in the intestine. So... We're just adding them in, holding them at the different pHs so they change according to the acid levels. We can now feed the model with different prebiotics. Now, prebiotics are carbohydrate-based normally. And what they are, they're food for the bacteria. So they're tested to see what bacteria actually grow on them. So we can feed this into our first vessel of the system and see how they affect the bacteria within there. 
and um, see whether they can increase beneficial bacteria and whether this can persist to the second and third vessels, so whether we can actually have changes in our beneficial bacteria. We can also look at probiotics. Now, probiotics are actually the beneficial bacteria, so we can see by having a probiotic meal what it actually does when these bacteria are mixed with the bacteria already in the system, whether the bacteria that are ingested actually have a chance to exist, coexist with the bacteria that are already there. And what have you found so far? How well has it combined? Different probiotics have shown some very nice results that they can work nicely with the bacteria. But what we also find is often if you stop taking these, the bacteria then leave the system. So to improve your health, you need to have a regular intake of them? Absolutely, yes. It seems like it's the transient effect. What result have you seen with the prebiotics, so basically the things that are feeding the bacteria in your intestine? Has that been positive? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a nice way to increase the numbers of the bacteria already there, the beneficial ones. And we've been able to see nice increases using systems like this. And in some cases, we can see persistence of the prebiotic to causing good increases in the more distal regions, which is the area more prone to diseases. Well, that's certainly food for thought. That was Reading University researcher Gemma Walton showing Miris and Thillingham how it's possible to build an artificial intestine to understand how the life cycles of the bacteria that live inside us work. Thank you, Helen. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. We're talking about the bacteria that live on us and in us this week. Paul in Essex would like to ask Marcello Riggio, who's one of our guests this week, is there anything you can do to combat bad breath apart from a good tongue scrape and a toothbrush, Marcello? Uh, Unfortunately, at the moment, there is no uh, cure or or effective treatment. So one should actually continue to uh, use these scrapers where at all possible. Uh, Unfortunately, there's a perception that people who have bad breath uh, have got poor oral hygiene. That is not the case. You can keep your teeth scrupulously clean and floss consistently and you will still have bad breath, unfortunately. But you can use zinc-containing chewing gum, for example, which will will help to a certain extent. But there is no no solution or cure at the moment, unfortunately. hydrogen peroxide uh, low concentrations is also quite good at killing the bacteria yeah there are a number of solutions such as hydrogen peroxide which will kill bacteria but one has to be careful that you know you're killing off the good bacteria as well as the bad bacteria and that's certainly something we don't want to do these agents are non-selective thank you very much Marcello. now still to come on the naked scientists uh, we'll be finding out if the probiotic drinks that you see on sale in the supermarket can actually help us to combat allergies but first have you suffered from food poisoning lately well statistics suggest that 10 million people around the uk every single year get locked to a loo seat for longer than they'd like just because of something they ate and the chances are a lot of those cases are down to a bug called campylobacter which you actually find lurking in about 80 percent of the shop-bought chickens on sale here's ben valsler For this week's Kitchen Science, I've come to the University of Surrey in Guildford and I've met up with Dr Simon Park. Hi, Simon. Hello. Simon works on Campylobacter. Now, this is actually the most likely cause of food poisoning in the UK, but not many people know about it. So, Simon, how does Campylobacter get into us? It lives um, in the farm environment in all the poultry flocks. So the flocks in the UK are actually endemically contaminated with Campylobacter. And when it infects chickens, it's perfectly at home at that environment. And the chickens are perfectly healthy, so it's a, it's a commensal of chickens. During the slaughtering process, the gut contents of the chicken contaminate the external meat and the carcass of the chicken and goes into the supermarkets. We take it into our homes, and it's really from that major source that we get Campylobacter infection. What does it do to us when it does get in? 
When it gets in, it causes a very, very painful diarrhoea. It's one of the most painful types of food poisoning, and a lot of people that have the infection are mistakenly diagnosed as having appendicitis. It's that painful. It causes profuse, watery, and occasionally bloody diarrhoea. And in most people that have acquired the infection, that sort of clears up naturally over a sort of a two-week period. But occasionally you can get sort of relapses that can... You get stomach pains up to about two or three months afterwards. But usually our stomach acid and the enzymes in our stomach would break down the bacteria that we get on our food. So how does Campylobacter survive? Unlike a lot of other organisms like Salmonella and E. coli 0157, it's very sensitive in, in the laboratory. And if you subject it to acid conditions in the laboratory, it dies very quickly. But what you have to remember is that the stomach can have a very low pH, it can be very acidic about pH 1 or pH 2, but it's only that acidic at certain times when there's not a lot of food in there. So when you eat the Campylobacter, it's quite likely that it can be protected within lumps of food or lumps of chicken and thereby survive the process of going through the stomach. We also know that all of our digestive system is lined with its own complex spectrum of different bacteria, many of which we live with very happily that don't make us ill. How does Campylobacter establish a colony amongst all this other bacteria? It's quite a specialised organism and it has quite a different shape compared to a lot of bacteria. What you see when you look down a microscope is a very fine sort of corkscrew-like organism that moves through liquid as if it was a corkscrew sort of spinning through an environment and that gives it a relatively unique ability to move in very viscous environments. So when it comes into the gut of a, of a human that's consumed it, what it does is it follows a path or a trace of chemicals that lead it to the wall of the gut. And whilst the lumen of the gut is, is packed full of bacteria, the very narrow environment between the tissue of the gut and the faeces is relatively unoccupied. So it swims towards that and then its corkscrew shape and its drilling ability allows it to penetrate the tissue of the gut. So it has a specialised niche that it occupies in the human gut. And once it's taken hold in that niche, how does it actually do the damage? Does it multiply so quickly that its sheer numbers hurt us or does it release a toxin? Well, it certainly multiplies into huge numbers, but as to how it actually causes illness, I mean, I started working with it about 20 years ago, and we still don't know. It does produce a toxin, and it also has been shown to invade gut tissue. So these are sort of two possible mechanisms. And thirdly, it may be that because you get such high numbers of the organism there, the immune system over-responds to the infection and it damages the gut tissue in terms of the collateral effects so that the, the actual symptoms of diarrhoea, inflammation and pain may be generated by your immune system overreacting to the infection. Well, it certainly sounds like something we should avoid. Is there any way we can avoid it? Um, it's very difficult to avoid. If you eat meat, and particularly if you eat chicken, um, it contaminates, depending on what study you read, up to 70 to 90% of supermarket chicken. So... You must be aware of that, and when you handle things like raw chicken, you need to obviously use separate chopping boards and separate knives to do that, but also be very careful when you're washing your hands. If, if for example, you take a piece of chicken out or a chicken carcass out of a, a fridge, you touch it, you start chopping it up into joints, then think about washing your hands. The first thing you do is go over to the sink, turn the, the taps on, and you touch the taps. You then wash your hands... And the next thing you do is turn the tap off and you immediately recontaminate yourself because you've just touched the tap. 
On the subject of transmitting bacteria is really the reason I've come to see you, because for this week's Kitchen Science, we know that coughs and sneezes can spread diseases, and that's how many respiratory infections actually get transferred. But you were thinking there might be another way that bacteria could be transmitted. Yes, um, I have two sons, Joe and Josh, who are age five and seven, and they've developed a sort of obsession with this homemade biological prank, farting. And I thought, why do we find this so offensive and why is it dangerous and can I demonstrate this to my children to stop them doing it? So I thought of some experiments where I could actually prove whether or not farts could transmit bacteria. So what I've done is, is taken some um, McConkie agar plates that are very good at culturing um, faecal bacteria and done some very crude experiments where we've exposed the plates to people farting in terms of a a naked fart with no pants and no jeans on, and also people farting with underpants and jeans on. (laughs) So you've set this up by uh, passing wind, shall we say, on uh, what's called a McConkie's agar Mm -hmm. plate. And I believe that you actually have some of these plates to show us. Yes. (laughs) So later on in the show, we will get these plates out and have a look and see what bacteria have actually grown. So can bacteria get through the layers of underpants and denim? Should we have a no-flatulence zone around hospitals? Well, Ben will be back soon, rather stinkily, with the results. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. If you'd like to get in touch, email us on chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we're talking this week about bacteria that live on us and in us, and we've heard how bacteria work with us to help our digestion, and we've heard about some bacteria like Campylobacter that Ben was just talking about that can make us very ill. But one of the claims that's made about good bacteria is that they can reduce allergies, and that means things like eczema and asthma, and they can also reduce the risk of developing childhood diarrhoea. But is it really true? Well, Gareth Morgan's a researcher who's been looking at this question, and he's at the University of Swansea. So, Gareth, what is all of the thinking behind these claims? Well, um, as you uh, heard earlier in the programme, probiotics are thought of as beneficial bacteria. So unlike the Campylobacter that infect your intestine and uh, and make you ill, uh, these are bacteria which um, live in your intestine, colonise your intestine, uh, but their effects are, are, are the opposite, that they give you uh, good good health. And in terms of allergies, um, there have been uh, a number of studies looking at whether or not uh, probiotic uh, treatments causing these colonizations by giving uh, the probiotics by mouth can actually either prevent you developing allergy uh, or actually treat them. So in other words, if someone's got some kind of disturbed normal flora, bacteria living in their intestine, you can supplement them with what ought to be there and this ought to make them healthier? Well, it's, it's not necessarily that they're, that they're disturbed. Um, they may have uh, you know, perfectly normal uh, bowel flora, but by, by changing them or manipulating them in, in a direction that, uh, um, that, is, that is beneficial, that allergies can either be prevented or treated. How do we think that you can prevent allergies just by changing the bacteria you have in your gut? Because for for many people, myself included, the the link is not obvious. Well, it could well be that uh, um, it's the interaction between the immune system of of the intestine and then of the of the body as a whole with these bacteria that are that are living there uh, and it's certainly the case that we know that the intestine has more um, cells of the immune system 
in it than the whole of the rest of the body put put together. So there is a continuous activity of the immune system going on in the intestine, um, essentially because it you know it's in a, in a place which where the the body is exposed to the outside world. So foods coming in all the time, all sorts of other bacteria, viruses, uh, toxins are all coming into the intestine uh, on a regular basis uh, as we eat. And uh, that, that needs to be regulated and defended against. And so the immune system is always there reacting, responding to, to the bacteria. And, of course, it's the immune system that uh, decides whether or not we respond uh, to an allergen, something like uh, house dust mite or pollen or, something, or, 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 or another allergen, uh, in a way that gives us uh, allergic disease. So what experiments have you been doing to find out how you can manipulate these bacteria and how you can demonstrate these health benefits? Okay, well, what we're, we're doing in Swansea is that we are uh, we're conducting a trial of, uh, of probiotic bacteria given to uh, mothers at the end of the pregnancy and to their newborn babies for the first six months of life. Uh, and this uh, reproduces a number of trials that uh, have already been carried out around the world the first one was in Finland about 10 years ago um, which have shown some of them not all of them that uh, giving probiotics in the way that I've just described can reduce the incidence of eczema in babies um, up to the age uh, and young children up to the age of two. Uh, the studies have, some of them have also looked at whether or not you can prevent asthma, uh, but that doesn't seem to be something that uh, has been uh, demonstrated yet, and hence this is why we're doing our, our particular study using different bacteria, different numbers of bacteria, to see whether or not Number one, we can also prevent eczema in, uh, in, uh, by the age of two years, but we'll also follow all these children up and see whether or not um, asthma is reduced as well. Are you giving this uh, treatment to all children born by any route, or are you tackling just children, say, born by caesarean? Because in the past there have been some studies that have suggested that children who are born by caesarean don't get this big dose of sort of probiotics off their mother, <coughs> as we've already heard from the scientists in Reading mm. uh, this week, and this means they're more prone to getting these problems. So who have you got in your study? It, we, we've got all, all children in, in our study, so those born vaginally and by... Um, and by caesarean section, uh, we also give uh, we, we've treated all all infants, whether or not uh, mothers are breastfeeding them or or bottle feeding them, because that's a, and that's another uh, area that's been suggested to um, uh, to to influence allergy. And certainly, breastfed babies have different uh, um, uh, bacteria in their intestines than bottle-fed babies do. This is presumably because there are different components in breast milk that select out and encourage the growth of, of certain types of bacteria, which is why you see that effect. Sure. Well, the, the, the bacteria themselves are there, but also the so-called prebiotics, uh, those, are the, uh, those are the kind of chemicals which stimulate uh, the, the probiotics, the beneficial bacteria, uh, are, are also in the breast milk. And just to, to finish up, how do we know that when you give these bacteria these probiotic bacteria to people, that they actually survive in the intestines? How do we know they get into people and they survive and make a difference? Uh, well, <clears throat> as part of the study, we, we, this, is, this is something that we are particularly interested in. Many of the other studies haven't particularly looked at this, uh, but we have, um, we have obtained um, 
stool samples from our babies um, throughout the first six months of life and and afterwards to uh, and uh, and developed uh, molecular techniques to to check whether or not the probiotics first of all uh, managed to establish a colonization and then uh, for how long that lasted Thank you very much. That's Gareth Morgan from Swansea University revealing how the bacteria in our diet can actually improve our health as well as prevent you from getting problems like allergies. Helen. Still to come, is flatulence as effective as coughs and sneezes at spreading diseases? We'll be finding out shortly. But first, it's time to welcome Diana O'Carroll back into the studio. Now, obviously, I won't be asking you about flatulence, Diana, but do you prescribe to probiotic yoghurt drinks? I think only if they made it in some kind of Mississippi mud pie flavour or something. That's kind of good. (laughs) I know, that'd be great. Um, Well, speaking of things that taste a bit like mud or are made of earth, um, I'm going to be digging into an age-old problem with the following question. Hello, I'm Bert Lattimore. I'm from Virginia in the United States. And my question concerns dinosaur ages. Somewhere I heard that the big plant-eating dinosaurs could live up to a 1,000 years. On another program or podcast, I heard that tyrannosaurs only lived 20 to 30 years, which seems very brief for such a big animal. So I'd like to know how long did the big dinosaurs live, those individual dinosaurs, and how can you tell from a fossil how long that animal lived? So how long did the very distant relative of your chicken sandwich really get? My name is Dr. John Nudds from the University of Manchester. I'm a paleontologist lecturer and I research on dinosaur eggs and embryos. The first thing we can say for certain is that no dinosaur ever lived for a thousand years, nor indeed for anything approaching that sort of time. If you compare dinosaurs to present-day animals, we might expect that the very large herbivores, things like uh, Brachiosaurus and Diplodocus, which were comparable in size to an elephant, would have lived, therefore, for 70, 80 years, maybe a bit more, whereas the smaller, more agile meat-eating dinosaurs would have been more comparable to some of today's larger birds, to which, of course, they are closely related. So if you think of something like an eagle or raven, they usually live between 20 and 30 years, and that would probably have been about the lifespan of a Tyrannosaurus rex. Now, how do we know this? Well, dinosaur bone is sometimes preserved in exquisite detail, and we can take thin sections of dinosaur bone and look at the bone histology, as we call it. That's the micro-architecture of the bone, just as we do with modern-day bone. And this has shown that some dinosaur bones, especially the, uh, the long limb bones, and also dinosaur teeth, grew in distinct layers. Now, the teeth added new layers on a daily basis, and limb bones, on the other hand, often added yearly layers. So just like counting tree rings to work out the age of a tree, we can count the annual layers in a dinosaur bone to work out the age of a dinosaur. Interestingly, some of this work has been carried out on Tyrannosaurus, and it's been shown that the largest known specimen, that's the one known as Sioux, which is in the Field Museum in Chicago, would have weighed more than 5,000 kilograms when living and lived to an age of 28 years. So scientists use a sort of ring-counting method for calculating the age of the long-dead dinosaur. Of course, you have to have some very nicely fossilised bone for this to work, and only certain places in the world have these perfect fossils that are created by very slow mineralisation processes. And Brudaboo on our forum linked dinosaur lifespans to those larger reptiles that's still around with us today that range from 80 to 200 years old. Wow. Uh, well, that's enough earth gazing. Here's a question on some stargazing. Hello, I'm Jesus Zafra from Neja, Spain, and this is my question. 
Knowing the possibility of life somewhere in a star like our sun, do we have any possibility of communication with our nearest stars? What kind of device will be used? Thank you very much. Bye. And I've always imagined the uh, object in the next question sounds a bit like how an alien would sound. Hi, this is Nick Lacey from Margaret River, Western Australia. My question of the week is about the acoustics of the didgeridoo. Could you please explain the science behind the cubic capacity of the internal chamber of the didgeridoo in relation to its length? So if you have an alien antenna in your back garden or you know how to build a didgeridoo, then do send us an email at questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or post your thoughts on our discussion-friendly forum. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana. Carol, for this week's exciting question of the week. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Helen Scales. We've been hearing about different bacteria that reside in various parts of our body and why we should perhaps be eating bacteria on purpose. But what about the ones that come out the other end? Well, here's Ben with the answer. Welcome back to today's flatulent kitchen science. I'm still with Simon Park with the University of Surrey in Guildford, and we've now moved into his lab where he's got the plates out that were used in this experiment. Now, one of these plates was farted on, uh, through jeans and pants and the other one was exposed to flatulence completely bare now we do like a bit of naked science here of course but the two plates one of them clearly has some colonies on and the other one looks completely clean so simon which one's which the plate that's totally clean is is the one that was exposed with pants and jeans on so it's obviously the pants and jeans are being very effective at filtering out any faecal bacteria but the plate that was exposed to the naked emission has a splattering of red colonies on and they're very indicative of um, E. coli that's a very common faecal bacteria that's a good indicator of faecal contamination. So we are definitely transmitting bacteria with, with every flatulence. Yes, absolutely, yes. I mean, there's such huge numbers of bacteria um, in a stool that it's inevitable that we will transmit bacteria after flatulence. So we've been able to catch these E. coli bacteria on an agar plate, which is designed to feed them and encourage them to grow. But they've been living inside us, so they've been living in an environment that's quite low in oxygen, and there's quite a bit of methane, hydrogen sulphide. So would these have actually survived if we hadn't encouraged them? Um, Yes, there's a lot of bacteria in the gut and a vast majority are strictly anaerobic so they can't grow in the presence of of a normal atmosphere. They can only grow where there's no oxygen. So obviously those bacteria, whilst they might have landed on the agar plate, that they wouldn't have been able to grow on the agar plate. But the ones that we have isolated are probably E. coli or coliforms that are very common in the gut and they are very robust bacteria so they will grow in air without air and on agar plates so these are capable of surviving outside in the environment for hours if not days so could this mean that people who choose not to wear underwear for example uh, scotsman wearing a kilt or naturists could actually be transmitting more bacteria every time they fart because there's no protection or no filtering i guess that that's true yes So we know now that jeans and pants will filter out some of the bacteria that otherwise might get transmitted through flatulence. But could there be anything else that gets transmitted? Is there anything that might get through the genes? Um, There are obviously viruses that that are many orders of magnitude smaller than um, bacteria. So things like the norovirus, which is a very common cause of um, vomiting, and some of the astroviruses that are common in in causing diarrhoea are are quite likely to, to pass through the very fine holes in things like underpants and jeans. 
And did you show your sons? Have, have you convinced them now that farting in the house is not right? Um, they were quite shocked. One of the first things they asked me were, are they friendly bacteria or are they bad bacteria? And I had to tell them they were relatively friendly bacteria. So obviously coughs and sneezes spread diseases. It's possible that farts do as well. Do you think maybe we should ban farting in hospitals? Um, possibly. Um, it's, it's very difficult to ban, actually, because um, everybody does it. And generally, on average, it's, it's about a pint glass full of gas that, that we emit every day. But most of us actually fart during our sleep when all our muscles are relaxed. So even though those of us that don't fart during the day, almost all of those will fart during the night un- unknowingly. So it's, it's very difficult to prevent in a hospital environment. So it's best that we just stick to using normal personal hygiene, keeping our hands washed with alcohol and that sort of thing. But I think the overall lesson we can take from this is it may not be best to go to a naturist barbecue. Dr Simon Park, thank you very much. Thank you. So going commando may be hazardous for your health. That was Ben showing us that flatulence really does transmit bacteria, but perhaps all you need is a pair of pants and jeans to stop them. Thank you, Helen. It's uh, into the last couple of minutes of this week's Naked Scientist. Uh, Gareth Morgan's with us from the University of Swansea, and there's a question for you, Gareth. Uh, Troy says, I read somewhere that gut bacteria make some of our vitamins for us. Uh, we get most of our vitamins uh, from our diet or, we, or, or the body makes them themselves and that dietary source is obviously very important. Now bacteria are very important in uh, digestion uh, and dealing with food properly so it's, it's entirely possible that bacteria may have uh, an important influence on how well we extract vitamins from our foods. And does that include any specific types of vitamins? Well, um, it, could be, uh, it could be any of them, but uh, B or K vitamins uh, could be the type of things that would be influenced. Thanks, Gareth. I've got a quick question here from Marcello from Chris in Cardiff. He wants to know, are we washing off our skin bacteria using antibacterial soap? And can we put them back, perhaps, with some sort of live yoghurt <laughs> that's smearing on our bodies? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's very important to, to have good good hand hygiene, but most of the bacteria on the surface of the skin are fairly harmless unless they get into the bloodstream where they can cause some nasty infections. And the most well-known is uh, MRSA, stephal- methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So we don't need to worry about bacteria on the skin. They don't cause any harm as long as they stay on the surface of the skin. Uh, skin is a very good barrier and they don't get into the bloodstream. So but it's if you strip away about. the good ones, Marcello, is there not a danger the bad ones might take over? Uh, there certainly is actually but uh, if you've got bad bacteria on the surface of the skin as long as they don't get into the bloodstream they're not going to cause any major problems unlike MRSA Thank you very much that's Marcello Riggio from Glasgow University Thank you for listening this week I have to say a very big thank you to our guests Gareth Morgan Marcello Riggio and also Helen Scales Miracle Thillingham Ben Valsler and Diana O'Carroll Next week we're blasting off to Mars to go and explore the Phoenix mission Have a great week See you next time Goodbye The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.